This episode of Historically Thinking was made possible by a grant from the Greater Good Science Center at the University of California at Berkeley. To learn more, go to ggsc.berkeley.edu. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. This is the second episode of our continuing series on intellectual humility and historical thinking. But before we get to our conversation, I wanted to pursue something I mentioned at the beginning of our first episode with philosopher Michael Lynch. I noted that there has been an explosion of scholarly interest in the topic of intellectual humility in the last 15 or so years. In fact, if you use the really useful Google Ngram viewer, which searches for mentions of a phrase in publications and on the internet since 1800, you'll see that the term really takes off in 2011. Epistemic humility, which I used to take to be a previous term of art, actually doesn't show up much at all until after 2011, and never as much as intellectual humility. Indeed, there are various previous peaks of using intellectual humility going deep into the 19th century. There's an interesting flurry of usage around 1870, for example, and then again around 1950. But nothing compares to the acceleration of usage after 2011, and I suppose that, being a historian, I'm almost inevitably bound to wonder why that is. I imagine that future intellectual historians will fight real battles over this 50 years or so from now. Funds will attribute it all to funding, and they won't be entirely wrong. Certainly one can easily see that there's a lot of funding available for research or podcasts on intellectual humility. But that doesn't explain where the funder's interests came from in funding a project on intellectual humility. Lazy historians in the future will say something like, because Trump, and I can imagine that they will be saying that about a lot of other things as well. But that will be attributing too much to one person and one moment, and it will ignore the fact that 2011 occurs five years before 2016. Interesting, isn't it, how those five years seem insignificant when looking at, say, the early 18th century or 300 BC, but really important when they're part of your own life experience? I suspect what some researchers of the future will find is that this interest was part of a set of larger circumstances and problems. They will see, going back to the 1990s, an increasing discontent with democratic polities, not only in the United States, but also in Western Europe and in India. In the United States, they will note the fractures occurring with the Iraq War, and then with the financial crisis of 2008. Underlying all of this, they will find a culture-wide discontent with institutions of every type shared by people who disagree about seemingly everything else. And closely aligned to this is a mistrust of experts. While that mistrust tends to shake out along partisan political lines, it doesn't always. It's shared to one extent or another across the political spectrum in interesting ways. This sense of things being badly out of joint, of the world being askew, tilted dangerously on its axis, leads some to despair, it leads many to despair, but also leads some to seek solutions, or even the merest potential glimmer of something resembling a solution. And that brings us to my guest in today's conversation. Igor Grossman is a social psychologist and associate professor of psychology at the University of Waterloo in Canada. Describing his lab, he writes, Most of our work 
either focuses on how people make sense of the world around them, their expectations, lay theories, metacognitions, forecasts, or it concerns how larger cultural forces impact human behavior and societal change. That makes him, I think, the perfect person to talk to about intellectual humility and social psychology. I began by asking him how he would define intellectual humility. So the one that we use in the lab is more about recognizing limits of knowledge and gaps in knowledge and fallibility or intellectual shortcomings. So that would be the one that I would probably prefer. Well, I found interesting in this, in one paper that you, and I think there's a lot of co-authors, there's six of you, I believe. <laughs> okay, uh, yeah. Per- very unusual for a historian to, to, to always to wonder how these things get generated. But this article is Predictors and Consequences of Intellectual Humility, and you and your co-authors yeah. make a very neat difference between intellectual humility and perspective-taking, which yeah. that was new to me. Could you explain what okay. is the difference between intellectual humility and perspective-taking? Perspective taking is typically about considering or recognizing others' viewpoints. And intellectual humility is more about recognizing limits of your own viewpoint. So there's a little bit of a subtle difference. One often can lead to another. And I think that it's a bidirectional relationship. But we need to separate between recognizing your own limitations and what your perspective is. And then... Another thing is recognizing the perspectives of others. So perspective taking is about recognizing perspectives of others. It's not necessarily, has nothing to do with checking in whether you're right or wrong about something. I realize I'm talking to a psychologist here, so this is difficult. This <laughs> actually, this is not metaphorical. And maybe in, in we might talk about empathy or sympathy in terms of perspective taking. The ability to put yourself sure. in someone else's shoes and see the world yeah. from their perspective. But one can do that while believing one's own conclusions are infallible. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And one can also then assume that whatever the other people are saying or will be doing, predicting what their perspective may be, that would be totally based on this very fallible belief. So you can have, for instance, errors in perspective taking, which may in part be due to intellectual shortcomings. One thing that fascinated me is to realize mm-hmm. that part of the debate over intellectual humility amongst psychologists is that different psychologists have foundationally different ways of conceiving it. it naturally, we look at you and you all seem the same, but of course, social psychologists and cognitive psychologists, they're psychologists, but you have very different presuppositions or foci of attention. You're interested in different things. That leads to a different way of thinking about these things. Am I approaching it correctly? Yeah, I mean, there are different methodological traditions and preferred approaches, how to handle an issue. And there are different worldviews, I would say, that folks who study cognitive cognitive science questions, which, by the way, does not only involve psychologists, but also philosophers and computer scientists. So there, there's that. There's, it's a different flavor from those who are coming from a developmental or educational perspective, for instance, who are much more interested in questions, okay, so how can I apply it? How can I improve it? And the methods would differ. So on the one hand, there's a difference in theoretical approaches, and there's also then a difference 
in the methods that I used. And uh, one leads to another, and there's also, it's again, bi-directional. So sometimes you stick with the method and because of the limitations of the method, you will end up with a particular theoretical position at the end. That's speaking in some generalities. Could you give a specific instance? So for intellectual humility, so this is really interesting. So the cognitive scientists or cognitive psychologists, as you call it, they are more likely to focus on metacognition. And by metacognition, they're talking specifically about regulating your thoughts and beliefs and recognizing the limits of your knowledge, for instance, recognizing that your beliefs may be wrong or that one may be wrong in general. And so that's one approach that, for instance, a cognitive scientist would prefer. And others would say, no, metacognition is much more complex. There's, there's this metacognitive component, but there's also about valuing others' beliefs. It's about admitting and showing that you're wrong. It's also about having true uh, inner motives and desires uh, to seek out the truth and all those things together. That's what, what intellectual humility is about. And so it's a much broader construct. And there are different features, motivational features, behavioral features, and then the metacognitive features that are subsumed. That's the definition that is often preferred by developmentalists and educational and clinical psychologists. And then there are some people who are in between. And I'm a social psychologist by training with a bit more of a probably cognitive science touch. And some of my colleagues, because I'm a social psychologist, I was like, okay, so of course there's, of course, behavior plays a role. Of course, motives play a role, but it depends on the situation. From one situation to the next, you may have variability and the configuration of these different features may look different. How your motives, for instance, will influence your metacognition or how you express this metacognition behaviorally may vary from one situation to the next. And so if I call all of them intellectual humility, all of those things together across all situations, I will be basically conflating a lot of different things. It's putting all fruits in the same basket and then calling them an apple. And then somebody says, but wait a second, tomato is a fruit. Why are you calling a tomato an apple? And so the issue here is that if you want really some conceptual clarity about the processes that are involved and how those different features, motivational, behavioral, metacognitive, relate to each other, using the same label doesn't seem very satisfactory. And so for me, as a social psychologist who studies how those type of things change from one situation to the next, from one culture to the next, it's very important to have that clarity, to tease apart under what circumstances, for instance, motives do play a role and for what group and under what circumstances they don't. You've used the term metacognitive. Uh-huh. I don't know what that is. Obviously, it's a fundamental term for you and for psychologists. Yeah. So what is metacognition? What is metacognitive? Oh, boy. So that's a term that is, I, in fact, I think some of my colleagues use it very differently than I do. So there are different traditions about metacognition. It's really fascinating. So it's not, it doesn't even start with intellectual humility. It starts with a metacognition. So some people talk about metacognitive feelings, which are feelings that you are not aware of. And that is not what I'm talking about. Even though there is a tradition in social psychology that goes back like at least 20 years of research on that. What I'm talking about is a much more basic idea of thinking about thinking, of cognitive processes that help you regulate 
your beliefs and your thought processes. It, they can also regulate your emotions. And so specifically for intellectual humility, when you say like recognizing the limits of your knowledge or be aware of your fallibility, what that entails is this kind of awareness about your thought process. And then this kind of light goes up, goes on and it's, oh, wait a second. I may be wrong. Actually, wait a second. Do I know? Or do I just believe, is this just an opinion or is it a fact? And so this type of process where it's like thinking about your current processing of information, that's what this idea of metacognition is about. And it turns out if you look at the scientific community, the definition of intellectual humility, often that is the part that we have a consensus about. So the other features, to what extent is behavior involved? What kind of motives do do you really need to have some kind of a true, genuine pursuit of truth and intrinsic desire to seek out truth? How even measure that? The intrinsic desire? I don't know. But okay, some people say that they know how to measure it. That's fine. But whether those things are involved or not, we don't really have a consensus. But on this one, on recognizing limits of your knowledge and being aware of your fallibility, there I think most scientists would probably agree. In the article, you refer to the metacognitive core and say that this metacognitive core is extremely important for thinking about intellectual humility. So what is a metacognitive core? Why is it important for thinking about intellectual humility? It's a core in the sense that it's a, it's a common denominator across different definitions and across okay. different ideas. And so whether you say, okay, when I talk about intellectual humility, what am I talking about? What do we agree on? Let's start with some things that we agree on. And then we would, what we would agree on is this recognizing limits of knowledge and awareness of fallibility. So that would be the metacognitive core of the concept of intellectual humility. Another things we can discuss and debate, but we need to establish some common ground. And the reason why it's important to establish a common ground, because otherwise, how are we supposed to understand each other? If we have disagreements in opinions and theories, in scientific findings, somebody says, intellectual humility makes you more meek, Another person says, no, intellectual humility is a sign of a truly strong leader. And it's like, wait a second, how is that supposed to work? You found this and I found that. Let's first take a look at what the findings are about. How did you define intellectual humility in the first place? What did you look at? So that's why it's important. So it's methodologically and conceptually important to have this core from which you can, this sort of jump board from which you can go out and explore different phenomena. All right. So let's get to the hard part. Which is measurement. Which oh, yes. Yeah. That's, that's fun. Yeah, <laughs> I'll link to the replication crisis in the show notes. But it's uh, this is a fraught question for all of us, and maybe for social psychologists, maybe more than most. One thing I noticed, okay. you said how general humility and modesty, when you're distinguishing from general humility and modesty from intellectual humility, they're psychometrically yeah. distinct from intellectual humility. Um That's a question of measurement. So somehow you're able to measure a difference. You're also able then to measure intellectual humility. And I'm wondering, how the hell can you do that? That's a good question. So first about the general humility and intellectual humility. So a good example is like somebody like Socrates. But you're a historian, so you tell me. Maybe I got it wrong. But my understanding is that Socrates was not necessarily generally humble would go around and say, you're such a nice, I'm, I'm so, so. And he was pretty provocative and he was not necessarily the most agreeable person. 
Uh, like a general humility is more about this notion of agreeableness. It's uh, it's really more like modesty and so on and so forth. Whereas intellectual humility is more along the lines of this so- Socratic idea of recognizing that you're full of shit, that you don't know everything, recognizing that you have limitations. And so that's why Socrates goes around, according to Plato, right, and asks other people and quizzes them because I don't know anything, but they say they know something. So let me check. So in many ways, Socrates is intellectually humble, but at the same time, certainly not humble generally. He's not agreeable. He is not modest in any ways. Or maybe it depends on how you look at it. I think that's right. I think this is why students always are irritated by Socrates, because they... I think that he is being intellectually humble. The Oracle has right. said that he's the wisest person, but he is convinced that he knows nothing. So he has to go around and ask people for how they know things. His conclusion, the apology is, at least other people have mistaken pretensions to knowledge. I at least do not. But at the same time, he doesn't fit in with what a 19-year-old, if you're teaching 19-year-olds, what they think of as humble or modest. Because he's provocative. He's a gadfly. He asks pointed questions. He insists on chains of reasoning and and logic in a way that a quote-unquote modest or humble person might just keep their mouth shut. So he's not that. But intellectually speaking, it would seem, I think Plato keeps his Socrates true to this, he insists that ultimately what he knows is how little he knows. So that's the distinction, I think, that is understandable. And to some extent, that's also something that we see then in the data. If you get these measures of humility that are much closer to the idea of modesty. You see this in the data. How are you acquiring this data? What are the means of that you all have used to hoover up this information? Because this is the part that, you know, is the witchcraft part for me. The approach is pretty simple, actually. Some of my colleagues are using questionnaires, so they would devise a set of statements and then they would give those statements to a large group of people and say, okay, can you indicate to what extent this statement seems to be close to how you define yourself, how you view yourself? Okay. And then they would get the responses from them and then see if there is something in common in those statements across a large group of people. Other times, they would uh, ask their friends. They say, okay, so Joe rated himself. You're a good friend of Joe. Can you tell me a little bit about Joe? And so you have this friend ratings where you get a bunch of people then rating somebody whom they would know, arguably from different perspectives. And then there are also a range of measures that are not necessarily about how you define yourself, but more about how you respond to a particular situation. So I either put you in a situation where I know that it's a tricky one, where there are conflicting opinions or there are different perspectives on an issue. So pick any political topic in the US or something like that, right? And then you would get different perspectives, disagreements. And then I ask you to reflect on it. And if chances are, let's say you reflect on the last time you had a conflict with somebody and then I ask you, okay, to what extent did you check whether you were right and the other person was wrong? Okay, so the focus is less on defining who you are, your sort of self-perception 
and more on the reflective process in a given situation. And that's the second approach that is often taken. When you're getting questionnaires, how do you correct for people lying? Oh, it's a very good point. Some people claim you can, but I think that's very bold of them to say that. So there are measures of social desirability where you would say you give people a bunch of statements and then you see if they are saying that they've never done that. Like, I I never watch porn. I've never cheated. I've never, and so like, and those are like those sensitive topics, but you can also find something that's not sensitive, uh, morally sensitive, and uh, where the majority of the people have done it at least once. And so you have a bunch of those statements and you give them to people and then they rate them. And then you see if there are people who are saying that they've never done any of those things. And like, that's not true. You probably have done it at least once, especially across the majority of those statements. And so they're measures like, but they're, so they're changing with time because things that you would have never done before, for instance, issues related to big topics right now, not that they've ever not been big topics, racism in the United States, what would be defined as a racist act. And then you would describe it. I've never shown X or done this and never thought X has been changing quite dramatically over time. And so what would be considered possibly appropriate even in the 50s would not be appropriate now. So you always have to adjust those items or those questionnaire items that you have. But anyway, so that's one way to catch if people are lying. But whether it really does it questionnaire, uh, questionable actually. When you give someone an intellectual humility questionnaire, I guess yeah. my immediate fear would be they say, oh, this is about intellectual humility. This, If it says yeah. questionnaire about your intellectual humility, I'm immediately, if I'm yeah. the respondent, I'm immediately primed to demonstrate intellectual humility. So I, I oh, guess yeah. you would just say this is a social psychology survey. And then do you sneak in questions about intellectual humility with questions about racism or with... Yeah. Uh, so no, normally it's not done like that. First of all, I don't know if there are any colleagues who would say, okay, here's a question about intellectual humility. Now tell me, how humble are you? That's, that's a car- kind of caricature. I think even the diehard trait researchers who use abstract questionnaires would not do that. First of all, they would not put a label intellectual humility. By the way, most people don't even know what intellectual humility is. That's right. So they keep asking me, like, this is a measure of intellectual humility. And they're like, what is that? Is that like, uh, how do is it good? do that? <laughs> yeah. Is that good? Exactly. It's about humility. No, I'm 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 certain. I am I'm strong. Anyways, and, and that's actually by the way, it's an important issue because if you don't have a good idea and there's no sort of cultural narrative about the construct, a well-defined cultural narrative about the construct, then it's not even clear to me if you can measure it abstractly in the first place. Is there an intellectual humility cultural narrative? I don't know. If you're a Christian and if you really go to Bible school or something like that, then maybe you will have a perspective on it. But I would bet that the majority of the people in this country don't. Uh, if you ask them how intellectually humble are you on average, they would have no idea what to say. And so it was like, then, so the first question would then be for themselves. Like if I were to answer that question, I would say, wait a second, is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? 
I guess it's a good thing. Okay, I have it <laughs> because I'm a good person. <laughs> so I have. But that's not how people normally measure it. So even those who do measure it with abstract questions, where we describe it actually in that paper about the predictors and consequence of intellectual humility as self-perceptions of intellectual humility or self-beliefs about intellectual humility. Those studies that focus on the self-beliefs, they provide more targeted questions. Nevertheless, I think the concern that you have still stands. I don't think you can measure, even if you break down the concept of intellectual humility in sort of statements, I often recognize limits of my knowledge. I was like, what does that mean? Like often, so what does often mean? And how, how are you supposed to check that in general? Because the thing is, like, you, you don't keep track of that because there is no cultural narrative about the construct. You would not be keeping track of that in contrast to, for instance, open-mindedness or neuroticism. Like, you know, like when we talk to our friends, we say, this person is neurotic, this person is less neurotic. In that situation, I was neurotic. So you keep track of that because we have developed a vocabulary about it. So this is an agreeable person. This is not an agreeable person. But intellectually humble, I don't think we go around and qualify, oh, this person was intellectually humble. In that situation, I was intellectually humble. No, you don't do that. So it's very hard to assess it in general. And so one thing that helps, though, and so here's the trick. When you go from this very abstract, mythical level of abstract self-beliefs about, oh, I'm intellectually humble, and you ask people, okay, so think about a recent disagreement, okay, where you had one opinion and you were at home, you know, there was Thanksgiving or something, and you had this uncle and you had the conversation, and then you had a disagreement. It's a classic situation. Okay, now put yourself back into that perspective, into that situation. Now tell me, to what extent did you check if maybe your uncle was right in some to some extent and then it's much easier to say what was the actual act what did you actually do in that particular situation so it's still self-report but it's a little bit easier to get to that level because you remember specific situation and there's also less less of some kind of general lie tendency because in that situation i did this thing but that's not who I am. <laughs> like in general, I'm doing. But in that situation, yeah, okay, fine. In that situation, I didn't check. It's a crazy uncle. What am I supposed to be checking here? People are less likely, and we did find that actually in a number of studies, that people are less likely to lie when you ask them about specific situations than when you ask them about this kind of abstract claims about the intellectual humility. I think it's inescapable that we valorize ourselves in the abstract. But when we confront the actual scenario, we say, he's just a crazy uncle. But it turns out most situations of that kind are always with the crazy uncle. Those are everyday situations, as opposed to the abstract situations in which we can imagine a different and better edition of ourself. It's interesting that you bring up that you used a scenario which relates to that this paper, uh, because in, in the paper, you and your co-authors, you spend a great deal of time talking about questionnaire work. If you have actually a table that takes up most of a page, 
with definitions, <laughs> yeah. measures. And no, it's very helpful. We need to have more than one, we need to show that there are more than one definitions and yeah. what are the different measures. And then, and also the approaches, the aspects, measure types, really. But then much shorter is another way of yeah. measuring it, which is fascinating, behavioral tasks. And immediately I had visions of undergraduates on their nose in a maze searching for intellectual <laughs> humility yes. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's another approach. You can look at observations of how people either spontaneously reflect in a given task or they're put in a particular situation. Or, in fact, you look at their behaviors. For instance, you play a game, and the game is about it's a knowledge quiz. And you can see how often people seek opinions of those who may be more knowledgeable than them. Like you mentioned, you study physics, and this is a quiz about an undergraduate student in physics, and you, this is a quiz about ancient history, Roman history. That's exactly. And you happen to have like, th- yeah, like you have maybe three people you could ask, and you know nothing about Roman history, Cicero maybe, Caesar, but that's it. So will you ask them, or will you just try to solve it by yourself? And so to what extent will you be acting out this virtue of intellectual humility by seeking out somebody else's advice on the topic. Now, the reason why that section is small is because there are not that many studies that use this approach. It's much harder to do, and it only applies to specific situations. For various reasons, including ethics, we can't really expose people in the lab to those crazy things, to those crazy uncles. That even those type of things, that would not fly in the face of ethics. And so we cannot enact somebody having a true, potentially profanity-loaded disagreement at the dinner table in the lab. So in the lab, you can do modest, more mundane things. And thus, situations that are more complicated, more volatile, they do require other methods, more ecologically sensitive methods where you ultimately end up using self-report questionnaires. So what I'm hearing you say, this is in my words, intellectual Mm -hmm. humility often is most valuable for everyone concerned when the amygdala is white hot. And it's hard to reproduce that in the lab, ethically, at least. Oh, yeah, possibly. I don't know. It is often involved. And I don't know if it's true that you can be... There There are a lot of people who, for instance, would be emotionally very alert and agitated. And yet some people handle that situation with grace or at least recognize that they may be wrong and then just take some time off and reflect on it. And others would just immediately react. And now the question is, is that intellectual humility? And I'm saying, no, it's not, because it's more about self-regulation. Uh-huh. And it's about emotion regulation. Uh-huh. And it's about recognizing what the situation is. And it's about knowing who you are. Now, those features may be parts of some kind of a full concept of wisdom, potentially, even though whether it reflects scientific concept of wisdom, that's a different story. But they're not part of this kind of central idea of intellectual humility, mm-hmm. at least in my opinion. Mm-hmm. They are features that would be enabling you to act in potentially intellectually humble ways or not, depending on how you handle the new emotions. You write that many aspects of human psychology run counter to intellectual humility. 
And this, uh, I, I find this, get to this why I find this a very provocative part of, of the whole, your account of intellectual humility. So what are some of those, what are some aspects of human psychology that militate against intellectual humility? Well, a lot of a group level processes, group dynamic processes, for instance, seeking to sustain your social status, valuing relationships, adhering to a certain ideology, being part of a group where you feel like you're a real human being because you're part of that group. All those features often go against intellectual humility. So if the ideology binds you often, you become more dogmatic. When you value relationships, you may discount uncomfortable thoughts about how much is this person actually saying that because they mean it versus how much do they say that because they just want to be a good friend. In fact, those type of piercing through this type of positive illusions. In psychology, there is this phenomenon of positive illusions in relationships where you may think that uh, my partner really loves me and my friends are really good friends. No, sometimes they are not very good friends, but it's good to think that they are good friends because then you react in kind and that sort of maintains the relationship. Now, intellectual humility can be maladaptive here. And so it's like you, under some circumstances, you may actually start questioning the true intentions or you may be questioning what the people are really thinking and whether you really know them. Some circumstances that may not necessarily be a good thing. Protecting social status is another feature here where you often to protect your status will not, will not share that you may have been wrong. You may feel like that you cannot afford showing your limits, cannot afford showing that your weaknesses including recognizing that you may have been wrong before. So people in high status positions are often uncomfortable with doing that, especially in our sort of Western culture, where we believe that the person should always be making decisions independently, irrespective of what others are saying or telling them. And the trick here is that often this, we talked about this earlier, that intellectual humility and Perspective taking, those are distinct features, but they're often interrelated. And so if you're not willing to consider or be sensitive to the social cues that you get from others' perspectives, you will potentially be less likely to recognize limits of your knowledge. Mm-hmm. Like this, you know, the horse with the shutters in front of your eyes. Mm-hmm. So you can only go straight. And um and cultures differ in that. So there are cultural processes that tell us that we should be either independent in our decision-making or potentially more sensitive to social cues. And we indoctrinate our kids in following either that sort of independent path and so on and so forth. And then there's like also individual differences. So this is about part of the human psychology. It's not about groups or not about cultures, but just about the fact that tolerating uncertainty can be really hard. And especially in a culture where you're told that you should be certain, where we reward somebody who presents themselves in a very certain way, we don't really provide people with many tools to handle the uncertainty. And so then they're left to their own devices. And then some people are really crumbling when they are in a situation where they realize, oh, I may be wrong. I don't know what to do. 
So it becomes a ver- an aversive state. It's very negative. And instead of like tracing it and trying to figure out, okay, how am I supposed to handle this further? People just discount this information, just like shut it off entirely. So that's another feature. So where you basically have limitations in your metacognitive processing. So you just cannot handle it either motivationally, emotionally, or cognitively. You just cannot recognize, oh, wait, there's other perspectives on that. They also need to process. And under some circumstances, you may also just not have enough time to even ask that question. We live in a time of like of everything is very fast paced. You have to make decisions very quickly. If you are in that situation where you have to make a decision very quickly, you may not be able to afford to be intellectually humble, at least for too long. So those are different features that do counter sometimes to intellectual humility. At least it's expression in our culture. So we've been circling around this, but yep. I think it's finally time to address this question. If so many aspects of human psychology are stacked against it, it's hard to define, it's blah, blah, blah. We've gone through all these things. Yet there seems to be some reason why intellectual humility actually is important. Given that it's so hard to find, given that so many factors in human experience, personal, interpersonal, cultural, militate against it, yep. why is intellectual humility actually important. What is the benefit? Many situations where you do have this type of group thing, where opinions are polarized and you're part of a particular group and all of us are parts of some groups, recognizing that your group's opinion may not necessarily be the right thing to do or that there are other perspectives on it, can be very adaptive. Because especially if you are sort of groupish, you end up aligning everybody in the group to think alike. That may have costs. So it's always good to have somebody who questions. That person will never be liked. (laughs) But evolutionary, it's always good to have that person somewhere. Also, um, many situations that we encounter in our lives are not very well defined. So you don't know actually what the good outcomes are, what the right thing to do is, because there are too many agents involved, too many people involved, too many perspectives. You just don't know what their perspectives are, what these different people want. You don't know what the outcome should be. And because you don't know what the different perspectives and interests are, you can't really just use some kind of a decision tree and calculate what the best, most optimal outcome will be. Because you can only do that when you actually know all the parameters involved in the equation. Like many unknowns, you just can't do that. At least the human computer cannot do that. And so in that situation, when you don't know all the parameters, recognizing that you may be wrong can be adaptive. In part because you may be able to be better able to focus on uncertain eventualities. It's like when you like forecast, okay, so this thing may happen, but also this other thing may happen. Oh, and this other thing may happen. And so did I check that? How do I know? Wait a second. Am I justified in my beliefs? And so this type of thinking, which is more along the lines of this kind of intellectual humility route, can under some circumstances have an advantage when you handle something that is inherently uncertain or radically uncertain, as some of my colleagues have called it. 
So those would be some of the situations. So groupthink type of situations, polarized situations, situations that are ill-defined, of which we have plenty. Let's jump to one of those. Yeah. A okay. A period of both groupthink and polarization, which is COVID and thinking about okay. COVID. This is a different paper that you were the lead writer on, Expert Predictions of Societal Change, Insights from the World uh-huh. after, after COVID Project. So could you briefly describe the World After COVID Project and what you did? And then I want to get to how intellectual humility was or was not at play or observable in that whole project. Yeah, so... When the pandemic started, I was really curious about how my colleagues were thinking about its outcomes. And I was also struck that by an observation that when I started looking at what people wrote about prior pandemics and what did scientists think, for instance, during the time of the Spanish flu, Winston Sigmund Freud and others, what kind of sort of opinions of their thought process, what was on their minds? And I couldn't find much. And I, th- I thought like maybe part of it is just because in hindsight, people may not even want to talk about it because it's too hurtful or they like using Freudian language. They would just suppress the thoughts about it. Um, but at the moment, so what you need to do then retrospectively, you can't ask people. You have to really capture it in the moment when something is happening. So I had this idea. It was like, how about I start collecting reflections from scientists that are forward-looking. So in the moment at the beginning of the pandemic, in the summer of 2020, I embarked on a range of projects. And one of them was this documentary, a series of questions that I would ask to leading social scientists in the world about what they think will happen. And then I also asked them, what kind of wisdom do we need to handle? What will be happening? And by the way, I asked both about positive and negative things, not just the negative things, but also the positive things. And and then we tried to do some science with that. And it was interesting for me because I'm not a documentarian, nor am I a historian. I'm a quantitatively oriented scientist. So it's okay, can we categorize somehow some of the themes that may be emerging in what people talk about? So we tried to do that. And what's interesting is that First of all, there were more opinions that there were scientists about <laughs> what will happen after the pandemic. So very diverse. So you definitely want to check it out on worldaftercovid.info. But the other thing that happened was that sometimes people would talk, well, this is a negative thing that will happen. But it also has the positive aspects to it. And so they are very dialectical, very uncertain even whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. For instance, there is a possibility for social unrest. And indeed, we did have the insurrection. But there's also a possibility for social disruption of our society for the better and improvement of our society. Okay, so the same thing, essentially, can have both positive and negative consequences in the sense that the pandemic could loosen the existing social order and that could result in some violent insurrections as well as some change for the better of the society. So a lot of reflections from the group were along those lines where they were very dialectical, also in an emotional tone, they were very dialectical. And that connects, of course, to intellectual humility. So at least, at least half of the people were in some ways uncertain in their predictions. 
mm-hmm. and how they reflected on that. What will happen after the after the pandemic is over? By the way, a lot of people thought the pandemic will be over in a year. Which, of course, is not a sobering thought. And I found very surprising because I did look at the Spanish flu and that was not over in a year. And I don't know why people thought it would be over in a year, but I guess that's another motivational aspect called motivated cognition. If you don't want something, you perceive the reality according to your desires and wishes. Mm-hmm. You, in the paper that we've been, I've been citing most of the time, you address the you have a long sidebar on intellectual humility and yeah. science, which I think we should yeah. probably end there. And again, this will be in the show notes. It's You discuss the, adva- the reasons why intellectual humility is fundamental for science, which I yeah. would think is obvious, but it doesn't seem to be obvious. So why is intellectual humility fundamentally important for scientific reasoning? And for the, Scientists, and for the, scienti- the scientific yeah. enterprise. Right. Yeah, there are two things. One is the the logic of the philosophy of science, at least the Popperian interpretation of it, is that you put a hypothesis forward that you want to disprove. So you always, almost always, whatever you put forward, you want to test if you're wrong. Your initial assumption that you compare it against is, I assume that there's a difference between these groups, but my actual hypothesis is that there are no differences. And so I want to compare if this difference is strong enough to merit further discussion. And, and this is the important part about like meriting further discussion because the process, the scientific process is such that you constantly revise the findings. It doesn't mean that, for instance, if you found something, then that will be the final say on a particular topic. And then science is also constantly evolving. It's, it's not like, they, like we found out that the earth is the center of the universe and that's it. And if you don't want to believe in that, we'll burn you. So <laughs> we passed that point in, in history. And, and even, by the way, that, that story is not entirely true. No, it's, it's like not. A caricature. <laughs> yeah. But the idea is that we have to be welcoming those people who criticize us as scientists and who want to improve and change whatever the prior findings were. And we should be very skeptical of our own research. For instance, if the phenomenon looks too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. If it's like you found a gigantic effect, it probably is just a typo, an error in your code. And that's just something that almost goes without saying, as you pointed out, except that the way how the sociology, the social structures and incentives have been set up in our society, in the scientific enterprise, they did reward having novel findings and having people often assigning their name to a particular phenomenon. And that's very dangerous because then you end up with a phenomenon in somebody's name. That person will not be willing. Now you end up with this group level, group dynamic process. That person will not be willing to give up that phenomenon because their reputation is now at stake. Because that means that phenomenon, their identity is at stake. If they define themselves through that finding, which they should never do, of course, but if that's how we set up the reward systems. And, and indeed, like when, for instance, the discussion about replications which is essentially a project about intellectual humility, if you think about it, at scale in sciences. Uh, replications in social psychology and in other fields in economics and in epidemiology started. And then we found out a lot of findings, especially in disciplines 
where there's a lot at stake. When you look at cancer research or epidemiology, but also disciplines where the methods are a little bit murky and there are a lot of degrees of freedom, like social psychology in the 90s. And then they find out that, oh, many things don't replicate. And then some people, instead of accepting that and say, let's do things better, they say, no, wait a second, wait a second. This, they, they do, my, my finding does replicate. What are you talking about? And then you just didn't do it right. And that type of reaction that merits a discussion, but it got hostile very quickly. And it just reflects the incentives, but it also reflects that we don't actually pay as much attention to the role of intellectual humility in science. Before we conclude the podcast, some final observations. Igor referred to the replication crisis in the social sciences, which I think is a good place to end this conversation as it points us forward towards our next foray into intellectual humility and historical thinking. The replication crisis in social science has its roots in the 1960s and 1970s when psychologists began to use statistical methods to analyze data from experiments. This led to an emphasis on finding statistically significant results, which could be published in prestigious academic journals. In the decades that followed, many studies were conducted based on small sample sizes or with flawed experimental designs. Some studies relied on questionable research practices, such as harking, hypothesizing after the results are known, and this increased the likelihood of false positives. Some studies proved to be out-and-out frauds. After a series of minor scandals brought attention to these issues in social science, researchers began to examine the replicability of many prominent studies. What they found was that many studies failed to replicate when repeated by other researchers. Provide a link to that in the show notes. But while reproducibility is a core principle of scientific research, is it really applicable to history? After all, historians work not with ideal evidence, but available evidence and that can often be incomplete or biased. Despite the best attempts to make history a social science, historical research always involves a degree of subjectivity and interpretation that makes complete reproducibility difficult and often impossible. But nevertheless, transparency and accountability are important in historical research, just as in any other field of research. Historians should provide clear documentation and sourcing for their claims so that others can examine their methods and conclusions. That's what footnotes are for, a place to show the work, allow others to follow in a historian's archival footsteps. And historians should strive to be aware of their own biases and perceptions that may influence their interpretations. As we'll see, that's often more difficult than it sounds. But that's for another conversation. My thanks to Igor Grossman for his time. I'm Al Sambone. Thanks for being part of Historically Thinking.